brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Montana Burner Mysteries is brought to you by The Advocates. Your accident wasn't your fault, so don't deal with it on your own. The Advocates will handle paperwork and deal with the insurance company so you can rest and get better. Been nervous to work with an attorney? Then work with an advocate instead. The Advocates are available 24-7 online at montanaadvocates.com. It's a case we first brought to you over a year ago as investigators, including a well-known national crime-solving figure, reopened the case of a woman stabbed to death in her own home. Welcome to Montana Murder Mysteries. I'm Angela Marshall. And I'm Blake Simonson. As we continue our between-season hiatus, we wanted to bring back some of our older cases. And one that got a lot of people talking was the case of Julianne Stallman. Now, Blake, this is a case that featured more than one podcast episode because you were able to talk to a famous cold case investigator, Paul Holes, and his new TV show dug deep into this case. Yeah, having someone that well-known for solving the Golden State Killer case working on an unsolved murder case here in Montana was huge. So huge. And he also lent his expertise in solving the Siobhan McGinnis cold case, the case of the toddler who was found sexually assaulted and murdered in a culvert just outside of Missoula back in the 1970s. But for today's show, we're going to combine those two Montana murder mystery episodes on Julianne Stallman so you as listeners will be able to hear them all at once. And here's Crime of Rage. It's really time for the nightmare to finally end for, you know, her family. Welcome to Montana Murder Mysteries, brought to you by ABC Fox Montana. We'll take you inside unsolved homicide cases under the big sky and learn where the investigations stand today. I'm Blake Simonson. And I'm Kate Whittle. This week, we're going to talk about a 41-year-old Butte woman who was stabbed to death in her own home about 25 years ago. This was uh, November 1994. Julianne Stallman had been home alone, um, and her son came home and found her dead on her kitchen floor. And now, Blake, you had talked to a couple different people for this one, right? Right. So I was able to talk to Butte Silverbow, Sheriff Ed Lester, as well as um, Julianne's Julianne's daughter's best friend, Misty Yeager. Oh. Now, this is our first episode where we're going to um, visit Butte, America. So I thought I would talk a little bit about Butte and um, set the scene a little bit for folks who are unfamiliar with Butte. Absolutely. Uh, go for it. It's the only town named Butte, so that's why it's Butte, America. I mean, there are other... Missoula is also the only town named Missoula, but we don't call it Missoula, America. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> uh Please don't 
email me, Butte, um, all of Butte. Uh, it's a special place. Um, you know, obviously the mining history is what it's all about. It is nicknamed the mining city with good reason. Uh, it's home to the Berkeley pit, which is, I think it's visible from space. Um, it's like a massive open mining, open mine pit. Um, the Anaconda Company bought the entire towns of Meterville, East Butte, and McQueen, uh, and basically raised all of the buildings and schools uh, and homes and dug them up to get to the copper vein in the ground, and there was silver and gold in there. And mining stopped in the pit in 1982, and that's when it started to fill with acidified, contaminated water. Uh, there's currently a big Superfund project to pump out that water into Silverbow Creek, and I believe that successfully just started uh, a couple months ago. Yep. Which is pretty interesting. Um, and this is where Julian, this, so this is the town that Julian Stallman grew up in. Um, and so by the early 1990s, Butte was really starting to see the economic decline since uh, mining was going away, there were fewer jobs, uh, people were starting to leave. Um, and so Julianne Stallman would have been living in a town that was uh, definitely not what it was when she was born. The voice you're about to hear is that of Misty Yeagers. She has been friends with Julianne's daughter, Jennifer, since high school. Just, you know, a really great person. She worked hard. Um, John, Johnny and Jenny were her life, you know. Uh, she loved the outdoors, did a lot of snowmobiling, floating, that kind of stuff. Um, and her parents were still alive when she was murdered, so she helped them out a lot with, you know, whatever they needed. She has some sisters, um, five sisters, two brothers. Like Misty said, Julianne came from a big family. She was one of eight children. Um, to give you kind of a, a better idea of um, kind of what she looked like, Julianne, um, in photos, it, it, she, they show a brown-haired woman with a, a big, beautiful smile. She looks a little sassy in her 1971 senior portrait, and she's wearing um, this beautiful purple dress. She lived in the neighborhood for two years, and when neighbors spoke to the Montana Standard after her death, they all described her as quiet. They said there wasn't a lot of foot traffic going in and out of the house. Um, she lived on California Street in Butte, where she lived just south of Stodden Park. Did you, did oh, you yes. talk about so that Stodden a little bit? So Stodden Park... Uh, it has been in the we've been right we've been actually doing a lot of news stories about Stodden Park lately um, because it's home to like multi-million dollar improvements uh, and today now they have the Ridge Waters Water Park which just opened I think last summer um, and that is perhaps most famous because a moose waded through it uh, before it was even open I think last May so the, yeah and yes it is the Ridge Waters Water Park so uh, Blake tell me a little bit about what was going on with Julianne right before the time of her death. Right. So at the time, uh, Julianne was a divorcee. She did have a boyfriend. She lived with her 22-year-old son, John. Her daughter, Jennifer, um, had just turned 21. She also lived in town. Um, Julie worked as a waitress at Jacqueline's Restaurant. I don't know if that restaurant is still open or not. We couldn't find a listing for it online. So... I mean, when I hear that someone is a waitress, my first thought is that this is like a creepy restaurant customer targeting her. And I don't know if we ever found anything to, to get into that. Um, I know we'll get into some theories later, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to work as a waitress and I definitely had some very uh, 
creepy overly friendly customers overly perhaps? friendly <laughs> customers even when i was like very young i was mm. like uh, 16 when i started waitressing so you know we know that julianne was absolutely beautiful so i wouldn't be surprised if she had a lot of admirers come to the restaurant to see her yeah would not surprise me um yeah, so Julianne was killed on November 29th, 1994. Uh, this was about a week after Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, she had actually just hosted Thanksgiving at her house. Yeah, super sad. Um, and so her son, John, uh, reported finding her. I, I I know John lived with her. I don't know if any of the other family members lived with her at this time. Not that I'm aware of. I believe it was just John and Julianne. Yeah. Um, so John showed up... Uh, and she had been stabbed in the neck and chest repeatedly, and the house was very bloody, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so he called 911 and told police that his mother was injured and probably dead. Um, when police arrived at the house, uh, John was standing on the sidewalk out in front of the house, and they asked him where his mom was. The police asked him where his mom was, and he, he said, just go in there and you'll see her. So the incident report that I looked over paints a pretty grisly scene. Um, When police came inside the house, they found blood on the carpeted dining room floor. There was blood smeared on the walls. And then when they got into the kitchen, they found Julianne's body. She was laying on her back in the middle of the kitchen floor. Her clothes were completely saturated with blood. There were pools of blood throughout the kitchen, and um, something that police noticed is that there were two cabinet doors that um, were open, which her family told, um, I believe it was the Missoulian back uh, when they originally covered the case, that this was very unusual and that uh, Julianne was very neat and that she didn't leave things open even when she was, like, cooking, so she wouldn't have left these cabinet doors open. When I spoke to Butte Silverbow Sheriff Ed Lester, he told me that he believed anything that was disturbed was probably from the fight between Julianne and her attacker. So what we do know, we know a little bit about uh, the rest of the house was pretty neat. Um, They couldn't find any signs of forced entry. It sounds like there was not good indicators that there was a robbery or a sexual assault. Um, And the back door leading into the kitchen was locked. But Julianne apparently didn't usually lock the front door during the day. Uh, An article in the Montana Standard quoted a neighbor who said that wasn't really super surprising. Yeah, so the neighbor said that it's not a neighborhood where you get a lot of loud noises or problems. The reason this is significant is because um, John said that Julianne didn't normally lock her front door during the day. However, he did say that he used his key to get in the door that night. Um, but you know, he, he also said that he didn't check if it was locked or not first. So it could have been unlocked. It it could have been locked. We're not entirely sure. Um, so let's talk timelines a little bit. John says that he last saw his mother at 8am when he left for work, um, at Stallman Steel. And now she kind of, kind of did the books there. So she would normally come by his work at 4pm to make a deposit. However, John says that she didn't show up that day. Yeah, and so uh, John got home at 6 p.m. and thought it was unusual that the lights were all off, uh, but the TV was apparently on and turned up very loud. Uh, And he saw his mother dead in the kitchen, 
And it sounds like he got scared and didn't go into the kitchen, which I could totally understand being like, oh, my God, I, I don't know if I can go in there. And now what's his shadow? Um, so I haven't really gotten much of an explanation for the shadow. Um, it's in the incident report. A, a lot of articles from the Times said that John um, saw a shadow, but police really didn't take that into consideration much but like there was as, a, as if that was a suspect's shadow or that's something? that's what the newspaper articles sound made it sound like um but police at the time said like they believed that the suspect had already left um and i did talk to ed lester about the lights not being on um and why that was so strange because it had just started to get dark yeah, at around 6 p.m. It would be in November. It would totally be dark at 6 p.m. Yeah. So then, she, like, John even said that his mom would have had all the lights on, you know, um, but there weren't any. So that's why police think that it actually happened during the day between, I think, 3 and 5 p.m. Oh. See, I was thinking that the suspect turned on the TV to drown out the noises and then turned the lights off to make it harder for anyone to see inside. That was my thought. But but knowing what we know about the potential actual time of the killing, um, that could totally point to that as well. Yeah, another thing that really speaks to the timeline is that uh, Julianne's daughter, um, Jennifer, she was planning on going to her mother's house um, I believe around three three thirty um to pick up her laundry, but didn't. So instead, she left a um, a message on her mom's phone at three forty five. Like you know, her mom didn't answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that Julie placed a call to her sister Patty, and when I talked to um, Jennifer's best friend uh misty she told me that the conversation was completely normal that um no one else had seemed to be the house misty the best friend of uh the daughter of jenny yeah right 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 okay yeah so so our timeline is that we know that julie julie was last known alive when she talked to her sister on the phone at 3 15 p.m yes and then at 3 45 she did not answer the phone right so the family told me that they believed that the murder occurred Around that time. Weird. Like between those two phone calls being placed. Yeah. Um, And so, and you were saying that there's evidence that uh, whoever this was stabbed Julianne, like, Julianne, like, really viciously and repeatedly and, like, to the point of almost decapitating her, it sounds like. Yeah. So I actually saw that. um, I only saw that referenced in one newspaper article, but I did ask Sheriff Ed Lester about it. Uh, You know, that's what... uh was released to the press at that time we've never really described the injuries to that extent although she was there was numerous injuries i can say that numerous uh sharp type injuries with an edged weapon of some sort so uh you're not entirely sure what the object was or no right now we you know we've been through motive after motive and and you know we've looked at a number of people that we thought were pretty viable suspects and uh we've never obviously located anybody that we can place in the residence at the time of the homicide or any uh alibi that uh 
you know, is better than any other alibi. We don't really have a motive, although the due from, you know, just given the violent confrontation and matter of uh, the assault, it's uh, obviously there was some, probably some familiarity with the victim. Uh, probably wasn't like a forced, my guess is it probably wasn't somebody that was a stranger to the victim. Now, it sounds like we do actually have some DNA, a DNA profile uh, for a potential suspect, but it sounds like that didn't come up with any leads, really. Yeah. Um, so apparently, with you know, there was there was blood everywhere in the kitchen and the dining room from um, the court or the incident report that I looked at. But you know, not all of it was Julie's. They got a DNA sample. They believe it to be a man's. Um, mostly because of how much strength and um, brutal force would be needed to um, achieve a crime this grisly. Yeah, it's hard to stab somebody. Well, I'm, I'm assuming. Rep- repeatedly and like, <laughs> yeah. So um, they believe it was a man. They have this DNA profile um, as technology gets better throughout the years. They keep retesting it. They've used this DNA profile to, um, I talked, Ed Lester said that it's not necessarily ruling out suspects because they don't want to rule anybody out. Um, but it, it has definitely kind of tried to steer them in a better direction. Hmm. Um, they do have it in CODIS. So far there have been no hits, but you know, every day, you know, more people are submitting their DNA to, um, like, Ancestry.com, that kind of thing. And, you know, every every time someone's convicted of a felony, that kind of stuff goes into the database. So they think that it's you know, just a matter of time. Hmm. Interesting. And I'm, I'm guessing that they have, like, obviously run that DNA against, like, the family and stuff like that? Yeah. So, um Lester told me that based on the DNA, that it's not anyone related to them. Huh, interesting. So, I mean, to me, that speaks to, like, a uh, jealous ex-boyfriend or stalker type situation. Yeah, I mean, they, they did look into um, the boyfriend at the time, um, but he was ruled out. Same with John, um, the ex-husband. Um, and I think that was... Um, they said that there was no alibi that was necessarily less believable than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that really stood out. Um, but the family does believe, you know, that it's it's very possible that it's someone that they all know. Huh. Interesting. Um, and so then, and so here's a note that, like, presumably the killer left the house covered in blood. And I think you were talking about, well, how does someone in broad daylight get to walk out of a house covered in blood and not be noticed. Yeah, it seemed very strange to me that, you know, they would, it, they would have this super bloody scene and they had to have gotten something on them. You know, they believe that, that Julianne fought back, possibly that her attacker um, had a bloody nose. Um, but as, as far as I can tell, no one has seen anything. And I actually talked to Miss Yeager about that. And I always think somebody knows something, just trying to get him to come forward or, you know, in the middle of the afternoon and stuff. And, you know, nobody seemed to see anything. And Mm -hmm. if they did, they're not talking yet. 
So every, I, I know it started out as um, Jennifer would um, call the police like every week asking for updates. Julianne's um, daughter. Julianne's daughter, Jennifer, yeah. Who to this day is still like really active in this case and is oh, still yeah. really pushing for this to be solved. She has been fighting for the past 25 years nonstop to try and get this case solved. Um, so, yeah, Jennifer and Misty, uh, they meet with police. I, th- I think now that uh, Jenny lives in South Dakota, it's more like every year or every six months. Yeah. Um, but they discuss new leads, any rumor that anyone has heard, um, or looking over things with new eyes. <laughs> yes, we're quite the armchair detectives, yes, for sure. So now it's time to talk about some of the rumors. And yeah, so what's this uh, abandoned car? Yeah, so... Um, there, there was a car that was abandoned in um, northwest of Moulton Reservoir and north of Walkerville. Uh, it didn't have a license plate. It wasn't registered. The rumor was that uh, the killer had smeared Julianne's blood in this vehicle. Police did get this car. Um, they tested it. It turns out it had been cleaned by a local company, um, but all of the tests came back negative. It didn't have any... Um, DNA from Julianne. They had no reason to believe that it was actually connected. So that lead went right out the window. Now, and 1994 was kind of an intense year for Butte. This was the third murder, or I guess, uh, homicide in Butte in in that year, 1994. Um, You had James Charlie Miller, who was killed in a pawn shop in January. Um, but perhaps most famous, the most famous death that year was actually Jeremy Bullock, who uh, at the time was, I think, 10, 11 years old. Yeah. Um, the nephew of our now current state governor, Steve Bullock. Um, and in April 1994, Jeremy Bullock was playing and was accidentally shot by a child who had brought a gun to school um, because he was sick of being bullied and uh, meant to target his bullies. But um, Jeremy was the one who was accidentally shot and killed. Um, a super sad story. Um, Governor C. Bullock, who is now running for president, uh, talks about it a little bit, but, um, you know, not too much. It comes up every so often. Right. Well, and, you know, with it being the third slaying that year, um, there were also four unsolved murders in four years in Butte alone. Um, it, a couple, I want to say, like, three or four years after this um, chunk of time with all the killings, two of those murders did eventually end up being solved. Um, But investigators at the time did talk to the Montana Standard and um, Sheriff John McPherson said, the problem is that people are not outraged. You know, why have they accepted this? Why have they accepted that someone can be murdered in Butte, Montana? So that sounds kind of like the sheriff is asking. I, I think he's asking for people to come forward and say something. Right? Yeah. Is that I, what that, that was about, kind of? Yeah, he was frustrated. Like, you know, the police can, they can gather as much evidence um, as there is at the scene. They can um, do everything right. But sometimes, you know, if there's no suspect to point it at. If there's no one to be like, hey, 
this guy had blood on him or I saw that there was this weird vehicle outside the car or something like mm-hmm. that. Like, there's there's not a whole lot they can do. So now tell me a little bit about this. Uh, and this has been discussed by people um, quoted by the Montana Standard that some people think there might have been some kind of law enforcement cover-up situation here with Julianne's death, right? Yeah, so I'll... Um, I'll let and Lester tell you a little bit about that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, there's nothing that indicates there was a. She did at one time and, and had dated in the past a retired officer, uh, but we don't see any link between any officers who were either on the job then or or since. Uh, although she did date a former police officer who was retired and actually retired for quite some time prior to that, the actual crime. Now, even though we don't have a, it sounds like the Butte investigators haven't turned up a ton of leads. Um, Julianne's daughter, Jennifer McPhee, has really gone to a lot of effort to try to keep this case alive. Um, Around 2011, she actually went and hired an outside private investigator, who I I think is a former police chief. Um, Uh, I think he was police chief at the time. Was police chief at the time. Uh, Brian Ketterhagen of T, South Dakota. The town T spelled like the drink. I have never heard of it. Um, And so Brian Ketterhagen is quoted a bunch in the Montana Standard as saying that he's going to come and work on this case and come over to Butte sometimes. Um, And at one point they also offered a $50,000 reward for any information in the case. Now, as far as we know, nothing much really came from this investigation. Um, although uh, it's you know certainly something that investigators do, are still looking at today. Um, Ed Lester, the current sheriff of Butte, Butte Silverbow County, uh, says they do still periodically revisit the details of the case. Well, the one thing that we do have is we have a tremendous amount of evidence that we still have from the scene that uh, has either been analyzed at the crime lab or there is some additional evidence that we have that's not been analyzed. We have uh, most of the evidence that that wasn't analyzed originally uh, is still packaged in, in, in its original. We, we never actually opened it. We did repackage it and so that we preserve anything that was there the original night. With technology and the supercomputers and the data that they can process now, uh, the hope is that we can, number one, don't uh, locate the person who is the donor of that strange sample that we can't identify through either uh, obviously the criminal database or genealogical databases or uh, websites such as GEDmatch where people submit their own DNA and through familial DNA you can you can draw conclusions based on relationships to that DNA pattern, and sometimes you're able to trace that pattern all the way back to uh, recon- reconstructing the uh, the uh, DNA profile that's at the scene. So, at the time, obviously, those things were not possible, uh, and it's only technology is only going to get better and better. So, uh, this is a case that I think there's really quite a bit of optimism that eventually this profile will be located. You know, just like any other cold case that has gone on this long, um, it's been transferred from person to person. A lot of people have worked on it all the way from, um, you know, Butte, Silverbow, Sheriff's Department to the investigator in South Dakota and even the FBI. 
yeah, it's it's changed hands um, a lot, um, and um, there is a um, new detective on it now. Um, Anthony Drenick is his name, um, and before that, we had uh, Jerome McCarthy, and he was on it for numerous years, um, and then of course others before him and stuff. But you know, it nothing seems to. nothing seems to change. So like Misty said, you know, this case has changed hands quite a bit. And most recently, um, Paul Holes, um, if if anyone is uh, really, really knows the Golden State Killer case out in California, they probably know the name Paul Holes because he played a big part in... um, the arrest of someone uh, connected to the Golden State Killer case. Um, And that all kind of came from DNA. He has this new Oxygen series called uh, The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. And there's going to be an episode about Julianne airing pretty soon, I think. Yeah, I wasn't able to figure out when the episode is going to air, but I know the series just launched uh, on October 12th. So it's pretty exciting for this investigation, you know, to have someone like Paul Holes with these resources being able to look into this. Interesting. Um, Now, Julianne's friends and family are definitely still hoping that this case can be solved. Um, I found a 2013 story from The Standard that says Julianne's sister still comes to decorate her grave with Christmas ornaments uh, as a way of keeping Julianne's spirit involved which is really sad. Um, Yeah, well, and something that um, is behind that is that the week that Julianne was killed, that's usually um, the week that she would decorate her home for Christmas after Thanksgiving, you know, because she had just hosted Thanksgiving the week before, and then she usually dedicated the week after to decorating her home. She loved these decorations, so um, decorating her um, gravesite like this is, is a really beautiful way to honor her. Yeah. And I was looking at, so the justice for, if you're interested in learning more, um, Julianne's daughter still runs the justice for Julianne page on Facebook. So there's a, a recent photo of Julianne that was taken on Thanksgiving, 1993. And that was about a year before she died. Um, and it's just really heart wrenching. Um, cause Uh, Julianne's daughter posted on it. She says, this picture of my mom was taken Thanksgiving 1993 in the kitchen where she was murdered. Not her last Thanksgiving, but the last picture I have of her on that holiday. 369 days after this picture, she was dead. Thanksgiving of 1994, I had forgotten my camera, so there are no pictures. Love the people you love every day. Tell them now. Tomorrow is never promised. Somebody knows something please, I mean, this affects, it isn't just Jenny and Johnny and, you know, their kids. This is affecting generations. The grandkids never being able to um, meet her and the great-grandkids, you know, and it's been 25 years. If somebody seen something, any anything, any little thing they think of, you know, please, please call the police. Just please, please call if you've seen anything. She was a real person, you know, and, and we can't forget that. Sometimes, sometimes people forget that she was a, you know, it's a living, breathing person, you know, and had joys and disappointments, and you know, yeah. 
if it was somebody in your family, think about that, please. Any information at all. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. When I was talking to Misty Yeager about um, Julie's death, I I did choke up a little bit, um, you know, really, when she was talking about, like, people need to remember that she was a real person. She was a living, breathing person. And how would you feel if, if this was someone in your family, you know, even 25 years later, if you'd want someone to come forward, if you know anything, you know, if, if you have any information concerning the murder of Julianne Stallman, you know, you need, you can call the Butte Crime Stoppers. You, you can remain anonymous. Um, their number is 406-782-7336, or um, you can call the police, uh, Butte Police at 406-497-1120. Thank you so much for listening to Montana Murder Mysteries. If you like our show, you can help us make more episodes by subscribing and telling your friends. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and CastBox. I think we're also on iHeartRadio now. Uh, Montana Murder Mysteries is researched and written by Blake Simonson and Kate Whittle and produced by Joe Lazar. You can send us your tips and comments through the ABC Fox Montana Facebook page. You can see photos and learn more about the evidence in our cases by checking our website. That's abcfoxmontana.com. And welcome to Montana Murder Mysteries, our very first mini-cast brought to you by ABC Fox Montana. I'm Angela Marshall. And I'm Blake Simonson. So, Blake, what is this very special occasion? Oh, my goodness. So, I actually got to interview one of my true crime idols, Paul Holes. Um, He was one of the investigators who was instrumental in tracking down and arresting a suspect in the famous cold case, The Golden State Killer. Now he has a show called The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. Oh, my gosh. What a great opportunity to be able to pick his brain. Oh, my gosh. I was I was so nervous. I I was shaking and I was like getting overheated and I had to take off my jacket. Um, but he's a, he's a really nice guy and he's very charismatic. And it, I was very obviously nervous when I went to interview him. And he's oh, he was so patient. So why in particular? were you talking to him? So actually, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before in our previous episodes, but the episode investigating the murder of Julianne Stallman airs tomorrow, November 2nd, because this is coming out on Friday. So Paul Holes agreed to give us a little inside look into what we can expect. You know, my show on the Oxygen Network is called The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. And this is a show that is doing what I did when I was active duty. I'm going around the country working with law enforcement on unsolved cases, Mm -hmm. helping them with my experience, my expertise, to see if we can't help advance the case with the ultimate goal of trying to solve the case. So what made Julianne's case stick out? Why did you why did you choose her case to investigate? Well Julianne's case struck me when it was first sent to me. The the crime scene itself is brutal. What happened to her was brutal. Uh, She had just been living her normal life, 
doing her daily activities. You see a Christmas tree that has been decorated. You see Christmas presents that were freshly wrapped on the table. I mean, everything should have just been ideal in her life. And then somebody came in in the middle of the day and just absolutely brutally killed her. And it's still unsolved. Now, for anyone who doesn't remember Julianne's case, we do have a full episode on it from just a few weeks ago. It is titled Crime of Rage, again in the Montana Murder Mystery series. Julianne Stallman was a beautiful 41-year-old mother and grandmother who was brutally stabbed to death in her own home in Butte back in 1994. And as we approach the 25-year mark of her murder, her murder remains unsolved, which is where Paul Holes comes in. Well, the process for me, I always start with the crime scene. I, I responded out to act upon the side scenes. I got good at understanding what I was looking at, not only from a crime scene reconstruction and forensic evidence perspective, but I take a look at the behaviors. What kind of offender does the behaviors uh, show me? Who, who, who is this guy? Why is he coming in here? Is he expressing a lot of rage towards the victim? Is there fantasy aspects? So I'm trying to interpret what's going on to help give me investigative direction as to where the, the suspect is likely to be found. What kind of guy is this? So I start with the crime scene, and then I have to get to know who the victim was. And that is talking to the family, talking to the friends or coworkers, and understanding who she was, what was going on in her life in the weeks or the months leading up to the murder. I honestly can't wait to see what they were able to find. But unfortunately, um, I mean, as much as I tried to get a sneak peek into the whole episode, I have to wait just like everybody else. Um, but I did talk to Paul about a lot of things surrounding his new show, including some of the hurdles that he ran into while investigating Julianne's case. Well, you know, I think in, in this particular case, this is a murder that occurred in Butte, and it's a small it's a small town, really. And so what I am finding is, is there's been a lot of chatter. A lot of the residents in Butte over the years have been talking about this case. And so the, the rumor mill is rampant. And everybody has an opinion as to what happened to Julie. And when I'm talking to potential witnesses, well, they've heard from three or four other people their version of what they think happened to Julie. So a lot of the information is already contaminated. So it's a matter of sorting through fact from fiction. And that's what I do as I go through Julie's case on the DNA of murder. And for those of you who are thinking there's no way a case this cold could be solved so easily and in such a short amount of time for a show. We did get to ask him what happens to these types of cases if he doesn't get a breakthrough before the deadline. Now, in, in all the cases that I'm doing for the DNA of murder, of course, we want to be able to, in that episode, you know, show, hey, this is who the offender is, and you see law enforcement arresting an individual. However, considering production cycles, you know, this that is unrealistic for most of these cases. Uh, so as these cases, once the episode ends, I will continue to stay in touch with law enforcement and continue to be able to provide my recommendations to them as new information comes in, whether it be forensic testing information or new investigative leads come up. And then we are going to update the viewers as we move forward as to what is going on on the case that they've already watched. 
So for anyone who's familiar with Julianne's case, are there any um, twists or turns that they can expect to see with her case being on your show? Well, part of looking at Julie's case is really trying to figure out, well, what happened at that crime scene? Who had motive to come in in the middle of the day and, and kill Julie? Who had the opportunity in the middle of the day to come in and, and, and kill Julie? So that is part of how I marched down on this case. And fundamentally, Julie fought for her life. And she, she failed to preserve her life. But during that fight, she may have gathered the evidence that I need in order to identify the offender. And as I go through this case and as this episode airs, the viewers will see how this case does evolve mm -hmm. to point towards a certain direction. Okay, so um, how many other cases are you covering this season then? Uh, for the DNA murder, we are doing 10 cases. So we have 10 okay. episodes with 10 cases, but sometimes like uh, in the, the season premiere, which has already aired, mm -hmm. that one case turned into being at least three linked cases. So as I go through each case, if it happens to be serial, then I start marching down the path of other linked cases. Now, are all of your um, cases from rural communities, or are you working some in bigger cities as well? All these cases, um, when I start taking a look at the agencies that I'm working with, it, it ranges from the very small agency to the very large agency. Mm -hmm. And part of the case assessment, once I've gotten a look at the case and I understand the case, it's a matter of reaching out to law enforcement. There's really... The, the primary criteria is that the family of the victim is on board and that they want to see a show done on their loved one's case. And then for the most part, we want to have law enforcement completely on board because I want to go in and help law enforcement with their case. And generally, it's the smaller agencies who don't handle these types of cases that are much more willing to have me come in and, and they're opening up their case file to me. A lot of the larger agencies, they're, they've got very experienced homicide investigators, they're well resourced, mm -hmm. and they're generally going to be, now we, we can handle these ourselves, but there are some very large agencies that I'm working with uh, for this series. So like the show says, you know, DNA of murder, is it all about the DNA or um, do you utilize a lot of the new technologies as well? Well, in many ways, the DNA of murder, of course, in the title it says DNA, but that's not really to say that this show is only about DNA. DNA in this day and age with where it's at, it's such an advanced technology that it, of course, is a primary tool that is used for the types of cases that I am going after, cases in which the offender and the victim have had close contact with each other. However, I'm going down and utilizing whatever resource I think is going to solve the case. It could be a forensic resource. It could be an investigative resource. It is just gumshoe detective work going and knocking on doors and talking to people. But of course, DNA is such a critical component in terms of being able to identify an unknown offender that that is a tool that I always am looking to see if I can exploit in any of the cases that I'm doing. So the episode covering uh, Julianne's case airs November 2nd, correct? Uh, that is correct. Uh, on the Oxygen Channel, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock Central. Well, all right. Um, is there anything else you would like our viewers to know? 
Uh, you know, I think for the viewers, this is really each episode is a journey, and this is inside access. Law enforcement, I'm going into law enforcement. They're seeing the law enforcement investigator interacting with me. Sometimes they're seeing the elected sheriff, like in Julie's case with Sheriff Lester, mm -hmm. where I'm talking to the sheriff himself about his agency's case. Uh, so the viewers are going to see actual inside information into an active investigation. They're going to see physical evidence in the case get an understanding for what the facts are of the case versus what's possibly out there currently in the public domain. And I think that's what's what's critical to understand from the viewer's perspective is what they are seeing is real. And this is where this is a real investigation. This is an active investigation. And investigations in these types of cases don't always go as planned. They don't fit a timeline. Uh, so I will do my best to be able to tell them what this case is and try to get the testing done. And they will see sometimes where I have success and they will see sometimes where I get frustrated because it's not the direction that it, it, as I thought it was going to be. It's not turning out the way I wanted it to be. But then it's a matter of being persistent and keeping on the case, whether that's during the course of the episode or even after the episode is aired. We will continue to march forward on these cases with the with the hope to finally solve all of them. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Now, before the DNA of Murder with Paul Holes episode airs tomorrow on Oxygen, make sure to go back and listen to our episode, Crime of Rage, to bring you up to date on what we know. Well, Blake, that will do it for our very first mini-cast. First mini-cast. Montana Murder Mysteries mini-cast. Make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast, so you don't miss an episode or any updates that we do have for you. And you can also follow us on Facebook and our website, abcfoxmontana.com. Make sure to see us right back here next Monday on Montana Murder Mysteries. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.